Uh, before we start, we're going to be in Titus 2, 11 through 15. Some of you had asked last week uh, when uh, JT had handed off a, a gift to me at the beginning of the service what the gift was. It was this. Uh, this is a, a preacher's Bible, uh, very nice goatskin leather. You can feel it in the touch that it's just good quality. The print, the font is fantastic. Any book nerds out there? Right? If you're a book nerd, things like font and clarity, those are like things that you just ooh and ah over. If you're not a book nerd, you don't really care, but that's all right, I do, all right? It's a very nice gift. I was very appreciative of it, so wanted to let you know what it was. I did think it was a little bit odd, though. You know, you have, uh, you know, your pastor one year in, and the first gift that you give to him is, hey, maybe you should try preaching from this Bible. <laughs> I don't know if that was the intent or not. I hope not, but it was greatly appreciated. First, uh, not First Timothy, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so if it sounds a little bit different from you, that would be why. Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we ask now that you would give us the ability not only to handle it well, um, but to receive it with humility. Father, help us to stand in awe and renewed gratitude of the great salvation that you have given to us through the death, resurrection, and ascension of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit, who regenerates us and renews us. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have been with us for the last four weeks in Titus, we've, been, uh, we've hit a section in chapter 2 that uh, we've just been sort of breaking down bit by bit. These are instructions for godly living. So, instructions for older men, for uh, older women, for young women, for young men, for slaves, so on and so forth. Instructions on godliness. What does godliness look like in real life? I wonder if, uh, if you've been here, especially if you've been here over these four weeks, just talking about what godliness looks like in real terms, I wonder how you've heard that. In other words, if, if you're here and you, you hear or you're considering instructions for godliness, do, when, when you hear those things, does, does it excite you or does it demoralize you? Is, is godliness something that at least in theory you think you'd like to have more of, but it just seems like, ah, you know, on the whole, it would be nice, but just a little too far out of reach? Does it feel more of a burden than a joy to talk about godliness? 
You think maybe it's one thing to, to refrain from ungodliness, but to actually grow in godliness, that's a whole nother matter. You're talking about a whole different ball game. If that's you, I wonder if one of the reasons that when you hear instructions for godliness, that one of the reasons that it, it just sort of falls heavy on you is because you've, you've lost sight of how great your salvation is. Some of you may have been here for four weeks or may even be here today for the first time, I'm not sure. And when you hear people talk about godliness or instructions for godliness, commands, directives, those things strike your ear as being a little too heavy-handed, burdensome on a good day, but maybe even oppressive, too constricting, right? Just not really in, in keeping with sort of who I am, the way that I like to roll right, that kind of a thing. If that's you, I wonder if you've been saved. One of the things that is so impressive, or I think so striking in 2.11 through 15, is that after going through 10 verses, 2.1 through 10, talking about godliness that fits or matches up with the doctrine that we teach, the confessions that we proclaim. It's only after those first ten verses that when you get down to verse 11, Paul actually gives us the ground for all of that. That the ground for godliness is our salvation. That what Paul is instructing us to do when it comes to godly living is not simply to create godliness out of thin air or to engage or pursue this sort of behavior modification that really is just so unrealistic that none of us can reach it. But he takes all of the instructions that he's given about godly living, and he's saying, all of this ultimately is what flows out of what you have already received. Godliness is the fruit of our salvation. Therefore, if godliness for you seems to be demoralizing, maybe one of the best things for you to do is to consider the kindness of God, the grace of God that He has given you, and to realize that what God is calling you to in godliness is not meant to be burdensome or demoralizing, but is meant to be life-giving. Or to consider that if you hear things like godliness or commands and you find those things to be oppressive or offensive, to consider that maybe you don't understand what these instructions are about because you have actually not been united to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look with me at 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Just stop right there. More often than not, when we see words like salvation in Scripture, we think of it in, in one limited aspect. We think of salvation in terms of being saved from the penalty of our sin, right? 
Like because we're sinners, because we're disobedient, because we have rebelled against our Creator and our King, we stand under the sentence of death. We deserve God's judgment. But because Christ came and stood in our place, hung on the cross, suffered, He took the penalty for our sin. He saved us from that penalty, saved us from that judgment so that we no longer have to worry about the judgment that's to come. That is true. That is gloriously true. We no longer fear death. We no longer have to worry about condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here, however, I don't think that what Paul is talking about when he talks about salvation is that the grace of God has come and saved us from the penalty of our sin. I think that what Paul is talking about is that the grace of God has appeared and has saved us from the power of our sin. Two reasons why I think the text kind of clues us in that that's what Paul has in mind, that that although we are saved from the penalty of sin, our salvation does include being saved, being delivered from the power of sin. One is because, as we've already indicated, the first ten verses are given in instructions for godly living. Verse 11 starts off with that little word, for. So older men are to live this way. They're to be sensible and dignified. Older women are to be this way. They're supposed to be reverent in their behavior. Younger women are to be loving their husbands and sensible. Younger men are to be sensible. Slaves are to submit to their masters. For... The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The reason that Paul can say in verses 1 through 10 that this is the way that we ought to live is because of what he gets to in verse 11, which is we live this way because we have been saved from the sin that we used to live in. In that respect, then, when Paul gives instructions or when in the Word of the Lord we find instructions for godly living, we're not to find ourselves in verses 1 through 10 and say, well, I guess this is what I have to do, this is what I have to work on, this is what I have to create. Rather, Paul is demonstrating the fact and wants us to understand that everything that he is telling us about life and godliness comes as a result of the fact that we have already been saved from the sin that once enslaved us. Because sin no longer has power over us, we can actually live in the way that he describes in verses 1 through 10. Do you think about your salvation that way? Or do you only think about salvation as being saved from some future day of judgment, some future penalty? Are you mindful of the fact that the grace of God in Jesus Christ breaks the power of canceled sin, and you don't have to live a slave to it anymore if you're in Christ? That's what Paul is talking about. The grace of God has appeared in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ, and has saved us from our old habits, our old ways of life, so that we can live in line with 
the godly picture that he describes in verses 1 through 10. The other reason that I think it's, it's evident, or we should consider, that the salvation that Paul is talking about is not merely salvation from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin, is because of what he says later on in this very passage. When you skip down to verse 14, again talking about Christ, he says that Christ, in verse 14, gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. Whatever your old life was before you came to faith in Christ, before you repented, before you turned to Him, before you found new life in Him, that life is gone. If you belong to Christ, you've been bought out of that. You've been cleansed and you've been purified. Those old habits, that's not you anymore because of your union with Christ. You've been made new. You've been given not only the ability to want to walk in godliness, but you've been actually given the power through the indwelling of this Holy Spirit to actually be godly as a gift. Godliness is not something that you have to create yourself. Godliness is something that God creates for you and gives to you that you get to walk in. The other thing to notice is that it's not just that, I mean, that's big enough, right, that God's grace has brought salvation that saves us from not just the penalty but the very power of sin to enable us to live godly lives. But notice that Paul says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Some of your versions may say something like all people or all humanity, which is perfectly fine. This is not universalism. Right? Well, Jesus came and He died on the cross and He saves everyone, and in the end, everything's just going to work out. Don't sweat it. Rather, the point that's being made here in the context of Titus 2 is that the grace of God that saves us from the power of sin has been made available to all men without distinction, which means If you fall into the category of older man or older woman, guess what is available to you? The grace of God that saves you from sin. If you are a younger man or a younger woman who thinks that, well, my godliness will start when I hit 30 or I hit 40. By the way, that's a lie. There is no magic number when godliness just kicks in. But if you're a younger man or a younger woman, the grace of God has come to you to save you from the power of sin so that you no longer have to settle for immaturity. You no longer have to live according to the whims of youthful indiscretion. 
The grace of God that brings salvation has come for you as well. Teenagers, if you're here and you're within the sound of my voice, well, if you're here, you're within the sound of my voice. Wake up if you're not in the sound of my voice, if you're not registering. Dare we say it, but that the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation even to you as a teenager. So that the sinful habits and lifestyles that are typical of your age group or your stage of life is not what has to hold and bind you. It ought not because you've been saved and delivered from that. In other words, I think one of the things that 2.11 does, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, I think it undercuts any excuse that we would try to give as to why we cannot live godly lives. What, what, are you, what are we going to say? That the power of sin is stronger than the power of God? Are we going to say that the grace of God is not effective enough to reach me or to reach you? Is not powerful enough to free me from this sin or that sin? Is that what we're going to say? God won't let us off that easy. We have been called to live godly lives because we have been freed from the sin that we used to live in, that used to characterize us, that we used to revel in and enjoy. That is no longer true for anyone who has been united to Jesus Christ. And if you sit under the preaching of God's Word, or if you open your Bible and you read and you find commands to holiness, things like, be holy for I am holy, if you find that unrealistic, if you find it unattainable, if you find it to be just something that you pay lip service to, I would lovingly, graciously encourage you to consider that perhaps you do not know or have not come to grips with the infinite power of a Creator who saves His people. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Sin does not care about your ethnicity or your gender or your age or your station in life. Everyone is bound to sin, but I've got good news for you. The grace of God does not care about your ethnicity, your gender, your age, or your stage of life. The grace of God saves all men. So it's God's grace that saves us from the power of sin that makes godly living possible. But notice that when Paul talks about the grace of God that has appeared bringing salvation to all men, the same grace that saves us from the power of sin is the same grace that teaches us or instructs us how we ought to live. So go back to 2.11. 
and 2.12, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Do you hear the commands of, of God? Do you hear the commands of Christ? as words of grace? Or do you just hear it as, as another law? When you hear the words of Christ, do you hear harsh demands that are being made on you, or do you hear that as an invitation to life. When you're considering the words that God has given us in Scripture, do you hear the words of a judge, or do you hear the words of a father giving loving instruction to his children as to how they ought to walk? By the way, pause here for a moment. Don't get this order wrong. Grace saves, and then it instructs. We're saved and then taught how to walk in that salvation. Maybe one of the reasons that the Word of God is not seen or felt as being as gracious as what it is is because too many of us have not actually entered in to the life that grace brings. And if you hear the commands or the instructions of Christ and you try to live accordingly, but you do it not in any way united to the vine, right? You're not drawing your strength from Christ. Probably one of two things will happen to you. You will either feel pretty good about how well you're doing, you're obeying the commands. By the way, it'll be faulty assurance for you, but you'll still feel good about it. And you'll become prideful and probably, in certain respects, unbearable to live with because you've, you've mastered it, you've got it figured out. Why can't all these other people get it together? Or you'll be trying to live out the commands for godliness under your own power, and you'll just be utterly demoralized because you'll never make it. But if you understand that grace comes and the power of God's salvation in Christ graciously comes and saves us, before it teaches us, you'll begin to see and understand more and more that it's the Father generating new life and then cultivating that new life that He's already given. In other words, we have to be born before we can learn how to walk. When a father teaches his, his son how to walk or how to throw a ball or how to hunt or how to fish or how to code a computer or, you know, I don't know, whatever father, whatever other fathers do with their kids. 
right? He does that as an act of love and grace for his child. He wants to give them something, not because he's trying to manipulate them or not because he's trying to be burdensome and oppressive. The life that he has brought into the world created is a life that he wants to see thrive and do well, and therefore he instructs him in the way that he ought to go. That's exactly what God does with us in his word. It is not given to us to beat us down, to demoralize us, to make us hopeless, but it is meant to give us hope and life that everything that God calls us to do is nothing less than what He has already given us the ability to do. This is the way. Walk in it. When the grace of God teaches us, the first thing that we're told in verse 12 is that we're instructed to deny ungodliness. Some of you may have something like to reject ungodliness or renounce ungodliness. I think ESV might say renounce. That's a pretty good word. In other words, the point here is not that the grace of God that saves you from the power of sin then merely tells you to abstain from sin or to keep your distance from it. The grace of God that has broken the power of sin now actually puts you in a hostile position to sin. You reject it, you renounce it. Christians, let me speak very directly to you. How do you measure your godliness? How do you know if you're growing in godly character? Well, I, I, don't, I don't sin like I, like I used to. Okay, that's good. Why do you not sin the way that you used to? If you're not sinning the way that you used to because you don't have the energy to sin the way that you used to, that's not renouncing ungodliness. If you're not sinning the way that you used to because you're too busy to sin the way that you used to, that is not renouncing ungodliness. Young men and young women, teenagers, if you're not sinning simply because you don't have the means or the resources or the freedom to sin, that is not renouncing ungodliness. The grace of God that comes in and does a work on our hearts and minds gives us a distaste for anything that is not righteous and godly. The question is, do you have that in your life? Do you abhor sin? Do you hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves? That's what the grace of God does. The grace of God is not mere behavior modification. The grace of God is not just simply meeting some sort of external show. The grace of God that breaks the power of canceled sin totally transforms you from the inside out so that you want things that you did not want before. And you're grieved when you don't get it. 
You hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you find that in Christ that hunger and thirst is satisfied. As an obedient child, as obedient children who address God as Father, we want to be obedient. We want to know full fellowship and pleasure with Him. And if that's not you, you have to ask yourself, why is that not true of you? Is it because the grace of God is not effective in your life? It's not powerful enough? That can't be. Is it because you do not have the grace of God at work in your heart and mind? The grace of God that comes in, that transforms His people, that gives them freedom from sin, teaches them to renounce and reject ungodliness. We don't enjoy We don't glorify, we don't support the things that bring shame and dishonor that are in contradiction to the moral, the virtue, the ethical standards that God has created. But then also by the same token, we are turning from this ungodliness and this unrighteousness and turning to something else. Christ gives Himself for us, verse 14, so that He can redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. Does zeal, does energy, does enthusiasm, does that describe the way that you approach the Christian life? When there's someone in need, and you recognize that need, and you feel that little prick in your conscience, help that person. What do you feel going on in your heart? Are you excited for the opportunity to love another brother or sister in Christ? Are you excited for the opportunity to love your neighbor as yourself? Are you enthusiastic about investing in the life of your church family so that others are able to grow and become better followers of Jesus Christ? Listen, I understand that, right, in in one sense, we have to recognize the fact that we are redeemed sinners. We, We still battle with sin. So when we have an opportunity to do a good deed, to love someone, to share, to protect, to provide, to instruct, to disciple, whatever, and we feel sort of that, uh, that selfish angst, in and of itself, that may not be a sign that we are not in the faith or that we're not in the family of God. At the very least, though, it should tell us that we're not as godly as what we may think that we are. Because the more godly we become, the more God grows us in His grace, the more eager we will become to do the things that Jesus Himself would do as He gives us opportunity.
So when you look in Scripture and when you see that the Lord has laid out very clear commands, that there are instructions, that there are laws, that there are statutes, that there are ordinances, how do you view that? Do you hear that call to godliness, and does it cause you to shrink away, or do you hear that call to godliness, and does it draw you in? If you are a child of God, it ought not cause you to shrink away. You ought to draw near to your Father and to your merciful and sympathetic high priest so that you can find grace and help in your time of need. Trust that all that He has done, all that He has given us in His Word and in His promises is sufficient for life and godliness. And believe that because He has broken the power of sin, set us free from that, and called us to walk in obedience, live and cultivate godliness, that God in His faithfulness will provide for us everything that we need to be obedient. God commands what He wills, but He gives what He commands. Turn with me, if you would, your attention to the Lord's table here. Still in Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny, to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, verse 13, while we're looking for or as we look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Has the grace of God worked so powerfully in your heart and in your mind? that this actually is characteristic of one of your deepest hopes to be with the Lord. One way that you might want to consider answering that question is to consider whether or not you actually grow tired of this world. In a very real, almost counterintuitive sense, I think there is a way, there, there is a sense in which Weariness of this life is actually a sign of godliness, because the more that you see that this world is not the way that it ought to be, the more you're convinced that the only way that's going to happen is if the Lord returns and makes all things new. And the more dissatisfied you become with this world, the hungrier you become to see Christ face to face. Another thing that will happen is that as you are, as a child, being drawn to the fatherly instruction that is given to us in God's Word, there's this uneasy 
friction that we face, right? The spirit battles against the flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to do what's right. I want to obey. I want to love the Lord more. Yet my flesh is far too easily satisfied with lesser things, even sinful things. And there is a life weariness that can creep in for a Christian who is striving to do her best, his best, to live obediently according to the the instructions that God has given in His Word. One of the reasons that the Lord's table is a gift to us is because it does two things. One, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, every time we partake of these elements, we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until He comes. We're acknowledging that the salvation that was purchased for us on the cross has not yet been completed, and there is more in store that we're we're waiting to receive. We're saying that the Savior who came once is going to come a second time, and we're waiting for that. It reminds us that all of the struggle and all the toil that we have right now, all of the frustration, all of the emptiness of this life is not the way that it's going to be forever. The second thing that it does is that it reminds us that precisely because this world is not the way that it ought to be, and because we carry around the burden of our flesh with sinful habits that we're trying to break free from, sometimes walking in faith and obedience, oftentimes walking in imperfect faith and obedience, or just sinning outright. It is a reminder that although if we were left to ourselves, we would never reach the end, we would never cross the finish line, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is sufficient to feed us every day so that we can be sustained until the end. The grace of God in Christ that saves me from my sin is the same grace that is available in Christ to keep me in the faith. And I desperately, every day, need to go back and feed on the person of Jesus Christ and let His words course through my mind and my heart so that I can make it through another day. And what we do then when we take these elements, we're reminding ourselves of that, that the only thing that gives us life, the only thing that sustains our life is the life that Christ gave for us. And the grace of God is available to His people on a regular, daily basis. Men, if you would come forward to prepare the elements for our people. In just a moment, the men will disperse the elements. We'll start with the, we'll start with the bread. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Yes, not prepackaged. You can go ahead, men. Two, it looks like. We have one for each section. One here. Lisa. 
hang on to the piano just for a second. Sorry, people. We're going away from the prepackaged. This is what some of the confusion is. All right? So here's what we're going to do. Bread's going around. After the men pass the bread, we'll come up, we'll get the cup, and we'll dispense the cup as well. Do not take the elements until we can all take it together. Okay? All right, Lisa, go ahead.
in John chapter 6, Jesus says this to the people who are with him. John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Take and eat, remembering that he gave his life so that we could live. Men, if you would come forward to distribute the cup. As the men make their way back up the aisle to distribute the cups, we just encourage you to sit quietly and reflect on the gift of salvation that is afforded to us in Christ. You may want to pray silently or even to read a passage of Scripture on your own as you wait, and then we will all partake of the cup together in just a moment.
Also in John chapter 6, Jesus says in 6.53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Would you take and drink, knowing that his life sustains you every day? Father, we thank you for your grace made effective through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. given to us and applied to our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to impress upon us the wonder of our salvation that not only sets us free from the penalty of our sin, but also breaks the power of sin. We look forward to the day, Father, when no longer will we have to worry about the power of sin, but even the very presence of sin will be no more. And so we ask that as we continue to feed on Christ and we find him to be sufficient for all of our needs, that you would give us joy and gratitude for all that we have through the life and death of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand as we close and continue to worship? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, say that thou art, thou my best all by day. Sing it out here. Rich as I hate now, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only be thy King of heaven when victory is won. 
chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.